That was the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie lovers. My name is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers of Films Fatale. I adore art house and international cinema, but I love a little bit of everything. Who else do I have with me? I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale, and I like to talk about classic movies and world cinema. James here, content creator. I produce and release music under the A-list boutique Paul. I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I am also a writer for Films Fatale. And as of October 1st, I no longer work my day job and I am pursuing all of my creative endeavors full time. Yay! Amazing. And that is that is fantastic news. But we have some additional fantastic news in case you can tell by the episode title. For any frequent listeners, it is that time. It's yet another episode of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. For any newcomers, what this basically is, is that each month, there's three of us lovely co-hosts, we decide what each other will watch for that month. So we give each other a film that neither of us have seen, and we report our findings. Additionally, in the second half of the episode, we discuss a communal film that all of us had to watch, that none of us have seen before. Although this month was a little interesting, because... While the film was Dracula, you know, the Bela Lugosi classic Dracula, um, it wasn't necessarily that entirely. It was actually the Spanish refilming of the exact same film. A little bit of a neat experiment to see what variations may have occurred just by the simple changing of audiences, uh, relearning or learning of a new language that perhaps not all of the performers actually knew. Um... All of that good stuff. How could that affect the final product of a film? But before, Is it essentially like a simul film because they shot them at the same time? Yeah, Pretty exactly. Much, yeah. It'll be an, a very interesting experience with that, you know, discussing this film, especially since it's uh, month of Halloween. So thank you, Rachel, for the communal pick. Otherwise, we're getting into our individual picks. So let's get into the nitty gritty. James, what did you have to watch this month? Oh, I got a real doozy of a film this time. Okay. So Rachel assigned me the 1986 film When the Wind Blows, based on the novel by Raymond Briggs. And I'll tell you, I was not expecting this film to get as dark as it got towards the end. What did you think you were going in to get? (laughs) I didn't know what I was quite... Getting into like when it started to kick off, it was kind of like, see, I was kind of thrown for a loop because I was like, okay, why is this movie like a slice of life during the end of times or potential end of times? Because, you know, for those who haven't seen it or don't know anything about the story is it deals with nuclear war and it stars a couple that are preparing, you know, the husband's constantly listening to the radio and he's kind of preparing for, you know, there's an announcement that in the next few days, it's like a bomb could potentially hit. And so he's kind of doing everything to prepare. And then, you know, just the, you know, typical married couple been together for so long, they're just bickering all the time. And then also it's kind of intercut with reminiscing about (laughs) experience with previous war. Mm -hmm, The blitz, I think. Which, which they actually happened upon what they kind of perceive as almost fond memories. But yeah, uh, I'm not going to give too much away. I'm not going to explain it. But the animation is really interesting. And then my eyes got really confused because what seems like it's going to be completely animated kind of morphs into animation with live set pieces. If I have that correctly. 
I, I think so. Yeah. Cause I don't know how they did it. Yeah. It's like, I didn't know if it was like clay or if it was like real shots, but it's like, you can tell it's not like traditionally animated. Like it looks like they like impose the animation over like real, actual real stuff. And they kind of like, blend in and out and it's really bizarre but yeah and it's also interesting because along the way it's almost like they're still hopeful the entire time everything's happening until the end where it quite doesn't work out and i'm just like well uh i'm drained of energy for the day because this totally exhausted all my emotions yeah overall i I thought it was i thought it was a i thought it was really good it was definitely i don't know it was just really interesting how it was put together animation wise like it was really unique. There are also like intercut, you know, clips of like real things. Like the intro is like some just like various shots of like real life. And I didn't quite get it at first. But yeah, I don't know. I I definitely recommend it. It was at least worth one watch. What did you think of the music? Because I, I was thinking of you as a musician when I uh gave this to you. I thought the music fit. Yeah. To be honest, it, it blended so perfectly that it was it's hard to focus on a single aspect of the movie. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. like, it, it, it was like it, it fits so well, like, cause everything just fits together so well. And yeah, no, it, the, the music was definitely good. Yeah. I think overall, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was quite an interesting experience. You know, I didn't know what to expect. Like I, the last time you had talked about it was for the animation episode. And now that I actually got a chance to see it, I'm like, Oh, I get it now. Mm-hmm. And it's tough because this is also like the team that brought us the snowman, which is like one of the most joyful animated things I've ever seen. So this is like the complete other side of the spectrum. And it was very much parodying actual advice that people in the Western world were given at the time about nuclear war. And they were sort of making fun of how stupid the advice was, because once that happens, no hiding under furniture is going to protect you, that kind of thing. Being when it was released, I thought it was going to be like a take on the Cold War, mm-hmm. like and actually like stick to that. But then once you actually start when things get rolling and like events, certain events actually happen, I'm like, oh, OK. So they kind of like veered off to like what would actually happen. But it's funny with the advice. It's like there's the husband still trying to take all this advice through and through no matter how ridiculous it is. Yeah, I think the couple are under the impression that it's going to be exactly like World War II, where the bombs were conventional, and if you survived the blast, you were probably going to be okay. Oh, yeah, and you know the constant talk of service trucks and the assistance that should be on their way. Yeah. If you want to ruin your day, watch it. Absolutely. Not that, that it's is, bad, it's just, it, it's just it, it's kind of a downer. It's Grave of the Fireflies level of sad. Yeah, so basically... Um, don't have plans afterwards. What was yours, Andreas? I guess since we started off with James, we're going to get into the pick that James had for me. And this was also a surprise. So instead of uh, an animated film that was insanely heavy, instead I was recommended a film by David Gordon Green, who, of all things, made you know Pineapple Express, which is like funny, but I think a little overrated. Your Highness, which I think is a complete disaster, and that's pretty much it from what I've seen. Or oh, our brand is Crisis and is like mediocre. Strong has been not doing bad. the new Halloween films recently. Exactly. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna think about those. But Stronger is actually a little underrated. The Jake Gyllenhaal Tatiana Maslany film. So I do recommend that. However, I was unaware as to what his best film was. I guess until a couple of days ago. And I can't believe this is the guy that did the pick that you gave for me called George Washington, which I get, I, I'm absolutely flummoxed that this is the same filmmaker. Yes, me it felt, too. 
Well, he started out doing dramas. His first few features were dramas before he did Pineapple Express. It's not even about it being a drama, though. Like, this is, like, so artistically inclined. Like, this is, this is a couple, like, this, now he, like, you know, maybe focuses more on, like, the storytelling side of things. But George Washington, while the story itself is fine, it's decent, it's so artistic and aesthetic. And, you know, it tells a story based on the vibe of everything, the vibe of a scene. Like, it's, it's like I'm watching a different filmmaker entirely. It's a film where not much happens for a good chunk of it, and yet he pulls it off. Yeah, it's almost like, at times, it almost feels like a Harmony Korine film, where I'm like getting like this, this slice of a community, this idea, this existence, until the turning point, which I don't really want to spoil, but it is kind of the main premise of the film. It's one of those where, if you know the premise, you kind of know what you're in for halfway through. Nonetheless, this, this was not the same guy at all, and... I had to double check when this film came out because I know it's on the Criterion channel and I know it's a fantastic digitization of the film. But I was still completely blown away that this was a film from 2000. It looked like it could have been a 2010 release. And that's because it's so well shot and so well edited and pieced together. And I feel like, I, I again, I can't help but say it, but like, I can't believe this is David Gordon Green. This is very, very peculiar. This is like... I was watching almost like a Terrence Malick, you know, if he first started out. Like, it's so different. So it's like it's like Malick on a micro budget, because this movie was only made for $42,000. And it doesn't look like it either. Like, again, it's so well shot. I don't know if it's because the transfer was fantastic. I'd like to think it's just because it was really well made in an artistic sense. Um, again, story-wise, the story is fine. It's It's relatively basic, but it's not about telling that story it's about you being ingrained in this north carolina existence being a part of this community and you know this tragedy that the film is anchored around and it doesn't get surreal but it almost gets you know in a sense like very very driven by symbolism as if it's like a daydream or something at times and again this the my lasting thought is I can't believe this is the guy who did your, your highness. I can't, I, I can't muster the, the, the thought that this is the same guy. No, I didn't look up the director before this movie. And so I didn't make the connection, but when you said it, I was like, really? <laughs> yes. This guy did your highness, which is one of the worst stoner films in existence. I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely really interesting. So one thing that I always like to point out about the movie because it deals with a group of adolescent kids, but the way he writes these characters, they seem a lot more mature and self-aware than normal kids in normal movies. Yeah, sometimes I felt he pulled that off. Sometimes I felt they were a little too wise. You know, sometimes yeah. kids can be written that way. I think for the most part, the writing was pretty solid and the kids did a great job of acting it. But yeah, a couple of times that was kind of the one drawback, but that is very hard to do. Well, that's the thing. I've seen some reviews. Like, I, I looked at some reviews after the fact that said, as a visual story, this is fantastic. But, like, the narrative story is kind of lacking. I wouldn't say it's lacking, but for sure, the emphasis was on the experience side of things. Whereas, you know, yeah, if you dig deeper, they don't really talk like they're kids. Or um, perhaps some of the storylines don't necessarily go anywhere in some kind of take priority it 
it, it's I wouldn't say it's all over the place, but clearly for somebody's debut film, they were focusing on trying to make this as good of an experience on paper, especially like if you're an in, like if you're an indie filmmaker and you tell a really good story, sometimes that's not what studios care about if it looks very under budget, unfortunately. So perhaps uh, that's where the emphasis went. But again, in that department, it's a sensational film. Story-wise, it's yeah, it's good, but it's flawed. But as an experience, it was fantastic. You know, I picked this for the same reason I picked The Poor and Hungry is because it's like, you don't believe this is the same person who went on to, you know, do the big films that they did, especially just being their very first feature. Like it's almost too good to be a first feature. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see more work from him in that vein. Specifically in that vein and not the other stuff. So uh, Rachel, what did you watch? <laughs> the complete opposite. <laughs> I was assigned Phantom of the Paradise, which is kind of, it's kind of Faust. It's kind of Phantom of the Opera, a little bit of Dorian Gray, all put through like 70s glam rock and a slight dose of whatever the directors were smoking at the time, because <laughs> oh my goodness, this movie is off the wall. Um, it's pretty much, if you can imagine Rocky Horror through a classic literature lens, that's basically what you've got. Um, the plot is a songwriter trying to get recognized at the Paradise, which is like this giant club. And it's got an amazing soundtrack. One of my all-time favorites. Yeah, the, the hairstyles are lamentable, unfortunately. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah. Um, one interesting note about this movie is that it is a Winnipeg institution. Uh, it It is a cult movie in the sense of like Rocky Horror, where people will go and dress up like the characters and call things out. But most of that has been centered in Winnipeg, Canada. So this is the second time that a Winnipeg movie has been featured in Smorgasbord. Oh, yeah, my Winnipeg. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Well, this this is my Winnipeg, because let me tell you, <laughs> uh, first off, I've never been. Secondly, people like Rocky Horror, and I get it. Rocky Horror is is good for what it is. This is my version of Rocky Horror where I know it's got some major, probably intentional, possibly not, issues. Especially with like some of the editing or like the, the Foley sounds. Oh yeah, like it's not a good movie. Don't mistake it for that. I don't know. I feel like it is in a sense, like in a cult sense, I'm not afraid to say it's one of my favorites. Like the music's really strong. I think it's better than Rocky Horror. Well, first off, I do agree with that. I do think it's for sure better than Rocky Horror. Well, with Rocky Horror, it's like part of the experience is being in on the joke, and Rocky Horror itself is a parody. Like it's intended mm-hmm. to be a parody of like you know B movies whereas Phantom of the Paradise it kind of takes that but it's a lot more grounded and I think structurally works better yeah and it is earnest in a way that Rocky Horror is not you're right and I feel like there is underneath some of the schlocky effects and everything a relatively good story that Mm -hmm. was you know hinged around a real concern that people are taking advantage of in various entertainment industries. Um, But while doing that, again, it has like one of my all-time favorite soundtracks. If you caught my top soundtracks list of all time, it easily made my top 10. It's probably, when it comes to soundtracks with original songs written for the film, the one that I listen to the most, Paul Williams is a genius, one of the very few people I've been like, 
starstruck by when I saw them in person. I couldn't even say a thing, and I kind of regret it. Like he was like right there, like two feet away from me. I couldn't say anything because he wrote some <laughs> of the best music I've ever heard in movie history. Uh, shout outs to to Rainbow Connection and the Muppets. And it uses several different genres too, so it's not all just one rock style. Yeah, and it's hilarious because they're actually satirizing so many of these styles. So like, like the Juicy Fruit stuff, they're making fun of like the Beach Boys and all of that. Like, you oh know, God, boy I want band the Juicy Fruits to play my wedding. <laughs> they're you know they're making fun of so many different styles going forth, but at the same time, uh, there's a song that's accidentally. That's actually accidentally proto metal, like the one that they play like at the actual opening of the Paradise, which predates a lot of like actual metal bands, and it's like actually astounding that this happened. Meanwhile, you've got some glam rock, fantastic stuff going on, um, some really sincere ballads as well. Yeah, some of those were my favorite musical moments in the movie, to be honest. Yeah, you're right, James, because. At times, it's the sincerity, because as, as fun as it is, it's actually very sincere as well, where it's like, I don't want to spoil too much, but as melodramatic as it gets, it comes from a place of pain, uh, and you're supposed to actually feel something, but in that same breath, they left in some of the worst lip syncing I've ever seen, but that's kind of part of the film. It's a poorly made, yet fantastically made film at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's definitely an experience I'd recommend. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I adore Phantom of the Paradise. And I know that it's, like, renowned as, like, a cult film. I'm going to I'm gonna give it its dues as, like, a well-made film. Because, like, not in the same way that The Room is entertaining because it's bad. I genuinely think there's some really strong filmmaking elements to this film. Despite the fact that there are also some atrocious ones. And... To me, that's like maybe they're left in intentionally to give it that rock and roll piece together, you know, punk when it was on the rise type of aesthetic. I don't know. But either way, gotta love Phantom of the Paradise. And speaking of uh, caped, infamous anti-heroes of the dark who come out and prey on those who have done them wrong, let's get into our second half of the episode. So, Oh my god, watched- I love this. We watched Dracula, but twice. Rachel, again, uh, we've discussed it before, but please tell us what exactly this is and and what happened. So for historical context, during the early talky years, which would have been the very late 20s and early 30s, we ran into some issues with what to do with different languages and different markets for films. Now it's all subtitling or dubbing. Very occasionally you'll still see this technique. But what happened is, in some productions, they would film one version in English and one version in another language that was for whatever market. I looked up all the instances where this had been where this has been done. Um, it was usually European languages: Spanish, French, Italian, German. Um, and this one was Dracula, filmed during the day in English, the Bela Lugosi one we know, and then in the evening, with a different cast. In Spanish, the jury's out on whether the director could speak Spanish. And you'd expect two carbon copies, but I don't think that's quite what we got. Oh, we definitely didn't. No, uh, I admittedly didn't get around to the English one. Uh, I've seen it before, but I wanted to revisit it. I just had too much too much going on. But from what I can remember, and I don't mean this with any disrespect, I feel like 
the English one was definitely catered towards the Hollywood crowd. So, like, I wouldn't call it safe or anything, but, like, definitely in terms of, like, how it's aged, sincerely hokey. Still fantastic, but it's almost like with the different crowd that they were adhering to with the Spanish one. I'm not going to say it's better than the English one. I actually don't have a preference between the two, but I will say it felt a little bit more... I don't know. Like, like it's. I don't want to say that it's taking itself seriously because the other film was as well, but like perhaps it's aged better in that respect, in my opinion. My take on it is, I think that the English crew didn't really have a firm grasp on a talkie film just yet. And mm-hmm. I think that Melford and the rest of the Spanish crew kind of were more comfortable in the medium of a talking film. And so I think it was more filmic and fit more comfortably in that context. Well, I think one of the things that makes Spanish Jackie better is they were shot simultaneously. So mm-hmm. Melford and crew actually had the dailies and production notes from the English production mm-hmm. to yeah. that. And then they could he could kind of do his own thing. Because if you notice, there's a lot more nuanced artistic choices in the Spanish version. And also yes. there's, there's a longer runtime, which I think really lends to it because the pacing is just a tad slower. But I think that really adds to build up towards the climax and then towards the ending. Yeah, like this one's actually about the story of Dracula, like not Dracula the character, but like, you know, the novel itself. Whereas the Hollywood Dracula that people have grown to love, you know, Bela Lugosi, everything. That was about the character, like in the same way that Frankenstein was about the monster, hence why he's erroneously referred to as Frankenstein when it's actually the doctor. I feel like this time in Hollywood, there was this focal point on the actual monsters themselves or like, you know, the creatures of the night and everything. And I think you're absolutely right. This one was a lot more invested in the actual story in the same way that I would argue that Nosferatu is. Um yeah, so it's a lot more immersive. It is rather bizarre to watch both of them close together because they do reuse footage or they'll be the same scene, but it's staged slightly differently. I do think, though, the actor who played Dracula in the Spanish one cannot touch Bela Lugosi. That was the one thing I felt the Spanish one was missing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. First off, I, I, I firmly agree with that for sure. Yeah, I actually watched them back to back today. And nice. I... One of the things I noticed, there was a lot more camera movement in the Spanish one. Mm-hmm. That, and I think that definitely lent to the atmosphere. Because the English one seems very rigid. I, I almost wish that we had the Spanish crew, but with the English cast. Yes, I, I feel like the original one felt more theatr- theatrical in a way. Which isn't necessarily a problem, but for sure if you have preferences, yeah. I also think Lupita Tovar, in the character of Mina, who becomes Ava in the Spanish version, was uh, much stronger as an actor than Helen Chandler. Oh, definitely. It was almost a night and day with the portrayal of the character. Yeah, they were two completely different women. Yeah, so I, I feel like on one hand it's interesting from a cinematic standpoint, but on the other hand... This is a really interesting case study on the understanding of a text because you're having basically two different adaptations 
which, you know, this isn't like King Kong and then seeing Peter Jackson's King Kong. You know, those are two completely different eras, different cinematic capabilities with technology, obviously different casts. But this was as close as you can get to, here's the same story, two different cast and crews, what are we going to get? And you get this result where it's like the same kind of technology, obviously the same era, the same understanding, but quite different. And I feel like if you're curious to see like that side of what an adaptation can be, this is a must watch. Oh yeah. And if you notice, cause I didn't really put this together until like after I had seen both of them, the English one is shot like a melodrama and you can tell that it's very classic era, but the Spanish one is shot more of as a thriller. And I think that's where the pacing really lends its strength. It's like, you know, it's a little bit more menacing or menacing in certain parts. Also the different angles they chose for scenes they actually copied. I thought worked a lot better. Like the scene where, uh, where Van Helsing shows him the mirror in the English one he opens it and he kind of slaps it down. But in the Spanish one, he looks in the mirror, realizes it, and then like smacks it down with his cane. And I thought that was one. I thought that was a better more way effective. to do it. Yeah. But also it adds more texture to the scene where it's like, you know, not only the camera, but it seems like there was more cutting also. So it's like there was almost just more production value in general, but they had the advantage because they got to see what was already going on and then shoot right after. So he could be like, OK, they did it this way. I'll do it my way. Exactly. It's almost a little unfair, isn't it? Well, another thing to take into account is uh, who directed, you know, the iconic Dracula people are talking about. It's uh, Todd Browning, who was a very provocative filmmaker as well. I mean, this is the guy who did Freaks for Crying Out Loud, as well as some other fantastic stuff. Like, uh, if you're interested in some of the silent stuff, oh my God, um, I need to look up what this... Didn't you do that? Thank you. Uh, yes, he did. Uh, thank you. That's exactly what I was thinking of. He did The Unknown, which is, you know, a very, I don't know if I want to call it disturbing, but it's a very taboo film for its time. Uh, you know, Lon Chaney in all, in all his glory, perhaps one of the Jeff best uh, Lon Chaney roles. Exactly. Uh, Joan Crawford, uh, you know, way before we got to know her the way that we know her now. But yeah, again, this is a guy who did Freaks, which is arguably one of the most polarizing, to this day, polarizing films of all time. So you know that he was coming from a place of maybe trying to extract the stuff that affects people from the source material, hence why it's melodramatic. Whereas the Spanish one perhaps is being more faithful to the source material and how it reads as a novel. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't... uh... I haven't read the novel in a while, so I'm not sure how much it departs. But um, yeah, also friendly PSA. If anybody knows where London After Midnight is, please let us know. Yes, uh, <laughs> I get why you brought that up. Uh, That's his yes. Lost Jack the Ripper-esque movie. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And it's one that um, any uh, Ryerson master student alumni of the film program can tell you. Uh, we were tasked with trying to, you know, kind of recreate it academically and, and let let teachers know what we thought this film was, mo- was supposed to represent. So yeah, London After Midnight, please. Please, every Ryerson alumni that I know needs to know what this was like. <laughs> anyway. I'm also curious about how we're going to feel about these other films that we're going to bring up because it's that time. It's that time to make our next recommendations. 
So, instead of our usual recommendations to just you listeners, this is when we decide our picks for the next smorgasbord. So, this is going to be interesting. I believe it's going to be, Rachel, you're going to decide for me. I'm going to decide for you, James. And James, you're going to decide for Rachel. Plus, I get to pick our communal pick. Something that none of us have seen before. I hope. So, uh, no, you don't need to be too concerned. Um, however, James, you might have to be. Anyway, who wants to start? Who wants to get their first pick? Well, before we do that, first of all, you can find us under Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the K-Cut. We like to post questions or trivia and talk about our upcoming episodes, especially this series. Now, Andreas, can I share yours? Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm so eager. Have you seen The Kane Mutiny? I've always wanted to because uh, I think, what was it, C-Lab 2021 uh, had this running joke about like Michael Caine that he's apparently part of the Caine mutiny. Yes, that's no, it's to... supposedly where he got his stage name from. Uh, he always joked that oh, if he... Oh, actually? Yeah, he saw a marquee and it was playing the Caine mutiny. This is what he tells. Um, and so he took his name from that and he was very, he said, I wonder what would have happened if the film had been playing 101 Dalmatians instead. <laughs> but, Michael Corella, but uh, yeah, case in point, I have not seen the K Mutiny. Yes, this is a naval drama, and it was Humphrey Bogart's third and final Oscar nomination for Best Actor. So you got one thing to look forward to at least. Amazing, yeah. I've I've always wanted to check this one out, even outside of the whole you know hilarity of what I just brought up. Um, yeah, Fred McMurray. This looks like it's a really strong cast. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited. And ooh, and it's in color as well. Fifties mm-hmm. color. Give me more of that Technicolor. So fantastic. I'm excited for that. Who wants to go next? Well, since she gave you yours, you want to give me mine? Sure thing. Mine's a little bit less uh, classy. I've brought up this filmmaker before, and my desire for you to at least check out something of his. You're gonna, um, you're gonna have a tough time there, James. You're gonna be checking out a film by Alejandro Jodorowsky. You're gonna be checking out El Topo, which yes. is one of the most insane. I've been meaning films. to watch this movie for years, and I just haven't <laughs> sat down for it yet. So I am extremely excited. It's one of the most insane, controversial films of all time, besides perhaps The Holy Mountain. But I feel like if there was a magnum opus by this guy. This is the one. So if you ever want to see what an acid Western looks like, and um, if you want to experience psychedelia without any drugs, it's time for El Topo. So So I love Smorgasbord. It forces me to watch movies I've been meaning to watch. Well, there you go. It's a very, uh, very taboo film. So uh, be prepared to either adore it because of how challenging it is or outright hate it. There's a a chance you might hate it. So I hope you don't. I'll probably love it. But... uh, there you go. You're going to get all topo. Uh, now, James, you've got to give Rachel her pick. Okay, so I was trying to think of what I wanted to do, and I just decided to give you the film that I recommended at last episode. So you're going to watch Road Racers by Robert Rodriguez. Nice. Because right. I figured it might be fun because it's set in the 1950s, and being you love classic era, you're going to see 1950s in a way that you would have never expected to see it. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. It's it's de- it's definitely unique. Like you could tell it's fifties, but I don't. Know, it, his style of filmmaking definitely adds another layer of excitement to it. All right then. Great. So 
unlike some of these other picks, these aren't things that we've discussed. In fact, this is probably going to be a complete out-of-nowhere pick. But this is something, for all of us, our communal pick, something that I've been dying to see for a very long time. I'm a very big fan of all types of Asian cinema. That includes Japanese, Hong Kong. It also includes Taiwanese. One of the greatest Taiwanese filmmakers of all time is Ho Xiaoxian. And we're looking at a film of his that I never got around to. Uh, if you want to know what else he's done, by the way, uh, what his uh, latest film, he won the Best Director Award at Cannes Film Festival. It was for The Assassin. He's also done some other fantastic works like The Puppet Master and A City of Sadness, Millennium Mambo. I never got around to Flowers of Shanghai starring Tony Lung. And apparently this is one of the most exquisite, gorgeous films of the 90s. So I don't believe this is going to be disturbing or messed up in any way. I'm hoping this is a very nice pick. First off, have either of you seen Flowers of Shanghai? No. No. Well, I hope it's a good one. Uh, one particular reason why I'm interested in this is it's shot by Mark Lee Pingbing, who uh, was one of the cinematographers for In the Mood for Love, Ooh. right next to Christopher Doyle. So, yeah, now this guy's a fantastic uh, director of photography. So I'm, I, I've heard that it's a gorgeous film. It just looks amazing. It sounds amazing. I don't know what it's going to be like as an actual story, but I can't wait to find out. Plus, Tony Lung, to me, can do no wrong. I've never seen a bad film of his. Wait, I've heard you say his name before. Wasn't he in Chunking Express? Tony Lung? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I thought I, I thought I recognized his name. I was like, wait, because I remember you you talked about him before and gave him a lot of praise, so okay. Yeah, he's I'm one excited. of my favorites. He's also, uh, to North American audiences, he finally had his English language debut in Shang-Chi, the Marvel film. So there you go. And for those of you listening, that was the K-Cut. Now we're going to head into the L-Cut. <laughs> 